All right. So time is of the essence this episode because we are talking about Silicon Valley Bank, its collapse, and what that means for the startup community, the greater world of innovation, and the shifts we might expect to see with some of the bigger tech tech platforms too. So with me today is Dave Oldham. He's a serial entrepreneur, investor, and startup advisor based in Salt Lake City. He's managing partner for Formal, which is his own consulting firm. Uh, Dave likes to build cool stuff with cool people, which I will take as a compliment because we got to work together back in late 2014 and early 2015. Hey, I'm cool, right? Tell my mom. Absolutely. Lindsay's one of the coolest cool people I've worked with. Yes. But first, like, welcome to this week's episode of Make Sense. It's a video podcast that simplifies complex issues at the intersection of tech and people. There are a lot of them. So whether you're totally hyped on artificial intelligence, you're ready for the robot takeover, or you want to crawl into a cave and delete all of your social media accounts, I'm here with my guests to help make sense of what's going on so we can all design ourselves into the future. My name is Lindsay Tabus. I'm a product market fit strategist and innovation advisor. I've always been obsessed with designing technology for people. So let's get started. Dave, how are you? Great. Thanks for having me on. This is awesome. <laughs> you are welcome. I'm so excited to catch up with you. I always enjoyed um, our conversations and working with you and so glad that we've been able to keep in touch for eight or nine years now. So that's yeah. awesome. It seems and- like yesterday, man. Time's <laughs> going by fast. <laughs> well, um, so last week I introduced uh, this idea of segments into make sense, and we're going to start with our first one, which is, what do you know? <laughs> this is where uh, us relatively intelligent tech ecosystem insiders discuss what hot mess has made national news from our industry. We don't claim to be experts, but we may know more than you do. So. Silicon Valley Bank, do you want to take a stab at explaining what happened uh, March 10th or so? Oh, just to high level? Yeah. Um, yeah, well, like, yeah. Yeah. So everything that, that we know, at least that um, people in my network know, is that uh, nothing it was nothing fraudulent, nothing nefarious. Um, I've, I've seen some of that rhetoric on you know social media, and I totally think it's dangerous and and totally incorrect. Mm-hmm. Um, but Silicon Valley Bank has been a bank that has been largely focused on startups and on the tech community. And they've been wonderful, in my opinion, at providing tools and flexibility for startups and entrepreneurs around managing their money. Um, they've been really, really generous with loans to startups to, to help them you know, fund payroll and do other things when, when things were tight. So I think they've been really big supporters of the tech community and startups. And uh, and in addition to that, a lot of the venture capital firms that invested in those startups also had their own, you know, fund money uh, managed by Silicon Valley Bank and in Silicon Valley Bank. And uh, towards the end of last year, um, there were a couple of financial analysts that kind of raised a little bit of a red flag and said, hey, Silicon Valley Bank is holding a large percentage of their uh, capital in these hold to maturity bonds, which mm-hmm. which hold to maturity bond is something that you say, I'm going to invest in this bond or I'm going to buy this bond and I'm going to, I hold it until it matures like seven years from now, 10 years from now, whatever. Yes, and it's yes. at a fixed interest rate and the fixed interest rate and the hold to maturity 
became the problem as the Fed, in trying to you know combat inflation, has significantly increased the interest rates and very aggressively still increasing the interest rates because right. inflation still really you know, haven't been able to get it under control. And that put Silicon Valley Bank in this position where a lot of these bonds and a lot of the investments that they held were underwater. They were yeah. they were not worth they were worth less yeah, than what they, they paid. So they had to do a write write down, or they had to kind of correct. Say, hey, we're writing off um, you know a, a pretty significant amount of money. We're talking billions of dollars. Billion, uh, yeah. We're writing this down, um, and. That they made an announcement, I think, you know, towards, you know, I think Wednesday or Thursday of last week um, that said, hey, we're writing this down. And that caused the stock market to kind of react like, hey, we're downgrading Silicon Valley Bank. And then that subsequently caused several large uh, VC firms in Silicon Valley to to say, hey, um, our money might be a little bit at risk here in Silicon Valley Bank. Now, I don't agree with that sentiment. I, I think there was maybe um, unwarranted panic. That's just my own personal opinion. But a couple That's of what things, happens to cause yeah. a big run is panic. Yes, exactly. So I think everything would have been fine if everyone would have just kept their money in. The problem is it's prisoner's dilemma, right? Um, those of you who don't know what that means, it's you get prisoners in separate cells and you see, you know, which one's going to wrap the other one out first. And in this particular context, it's, hey, if if a couple of big VC firms that have a lot of money in Silicon Valley Bank withdraw their money, then everybody else starts wondering, like, well, I got to take my money out because no one wants to be the last one, right. like holding the bag or not like with nothing in the bag, right, with right. no money left. And so a bunch of the VC firms started calling their startups when they started to see these deposits going out and they withdrew their money and it caused a run on the bank, um, which has, I don't think I've seen one of those in a long, 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 long time, uh, but it happened. And, and I think it was also fueled by social media, mm. uh, which is a new, it's definitely a new concept since the last bank run, Right. Um, and so you got, you know, very influential people. I'm not going to mention any by name because I'm, I'm pretty upset at several of them. Um, but a couple of really influential people started panicking and on social media said, Hey, this is a catastrophic event. This is a, you know, extinction level event. And it just caused a ripple effect of panic and everybody started, you know, pulling their money out. Yeah, so to kind of compliment and add to everything you just said, uh, there in the news, you kind of alluded like certain people are being called out as having caused this panic and or also that some people think there are nefarious things going going on. Um, for instance, like the execs paying out those bonuses, if everyone didn't freak out and cause the bank run, the bonuses were money due from 2022, right? Yeah. So and it just looks fishy. It looks and, really and, bad. Yeah, it looks optics really, are really bad. Optics are really bad. So it's like, feels a little more than just coincidental. Yeah. Um, and then the other part being, you know, the, the person that, uh, 
better, worse, Peter Thiel, uh, you know, lots of evokes lots, lots of strong feelings from different people. Yeah. But he's just like the loud, obvious one that, you know, withdrew his money and told all of his portfolio companies, which are many, to withdraw their money. But he wasn't the only VC. He was just the one that the public can see and recognizes by name. Yeah, he's pretty vocal. And there were several others. He wasn't the only actor. Um, So you're totally right. Now, the good thing is, and I support this at least, that the Fed came in and on Sunday, they were holding a special session just for this. And they said, okay, we're going to backstop this, or we're going to at least guarantee all the funds that were in the bank for depositors. This is a really critically important thing for people to understand, because I've seen a ton of people who don't know what the hell they're talking about posting on social media. Um, I wouldn't call this a bailout. And no. They're backing the depositors, which are the the companies that have money in the bank or deposits in the bank, is not protecting, you know, the rich people, just rich getting richer. This is the small and medium-sized businesses that are just trying to make payroll. They have their money in their savings and checking accounts, and suddenly it's gone, right? Like that, that's who this is protecting. And even if you want to come at the VCs, the, the VCs like a, a huge percentage of this money isn't their money. It's no. money that they're stewards over that are pension funds, that are okay. retirement funds, that are, uh, you know, educational endowments. Like it's, it's, it's everybody's money that, that were in these venture funds that I, I think um, it should have been protected. Um, but the, the, the thing that's critical here is that the fed has not said that um, they're protecting the management or the shareholders. So people who had invested in Silicon Valley Bank are out. They're screwed. Yeah. Their money is gone. Their investment right. written down to zero. And then this management, there, there have even been. There's going to be an investigation, from what I've been told, what I've you know what's been publicly said, into the management. And these recent bonuses will come under scrutiny. And if it looks like that they knew what was going to happen. They were anticipating that to happen and they tried to take money out before they could, that money could get clawed back and, or there could be criminal prosecution. Right. right? So the people are out there screaming like, Hey, this is just, you know, rich people, the government protecting rich people. I think that's a incorrect narrative. And I think that there still could be some really um, serious consequences for those people who are in the top decision-making positions that, uh, I think that the the mistake that they made was that they were more exposed with these long term bonds than a lot of other banks were, and that and that financial analysts would have recommended. Going back to you know almost six months ago, a few people raised the red flag of like, hey, these guys are kind of overexposed. Should should yeah. somebody do something about it? And that I think that mostly fell on deaf ears. And now those guys are looking like. I told you so, you know. Right. Well, it's, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of factors here and and this is where, you know, uh, me as a Reddit nerd, uh I opened up explain like I'm 5 subreddit and someone did have a great explanation for this. They said, "Hey, you're you have so much money in bonds, in these long-term bonds, and the government is basically saying to SVB, "Hey, we're going to raise the rates. These bonds are going to be worth less. And yeah. like, 
are you sure you don't want to hedge and invest in some other things? And SVB was like, no, nope, that's okay. And then a couple months later, hey, you're still in this position and we're going to raise my rates again. Like, do you want to hedge against this? Yes. Right? Um, so that was like one of the big mistakes is that they didn't have any hedging against. Yeah, they were They were exposed more than they should have been and more than any other bank was. Okay. I mean, the other thing and, and why it's caused like a lot of, of, of panic as well um, in our world is um, because like 90, 95% of their accounts had more than $250,000 in them, yeah. right? We're talking about seed startups that just closed a one and a half million dollar round and just plopped that money in SBV. They didn't keep one or two months payroll in another bank account, right? So that panic late last week and through the weekend, um, not knowing whether anything above 250 would be covered really yeah. also caused a lot of the the hysteria in the startup world. Yeah. So that's what we're talking, you know, yes, there are very big venture funds. Dave is absolutely correct though. A lot of those venture funds, you know, 1% of Michigan's, Michigan's teachers pension fund might be in this venture fund, right? Because yeah, they yeah. have to diversify their pensions. So yeah, we're not talking about um, paying off the actual shareholders and execs and making them whole. We're talking about a lot of startups that have to make payroll and a lot of venture funds that are stewards of other people's cash. Yeah. And if the Fed wouldn't have done what they did, then from from where I was sitting in Salt Lake City, a bunch of the the firms, uh, other startups were looking at their bank accounts that were not in Silicon Valley Bank, any of their bank accounts and saying, hey, how much of our bank account is is insured by the FDIC and anything over that, we're going to pull that out. Mm -hmm. And so it would have caused a run on on hundreds of other banks and and probably caused a a yeah. economic collapse in a, in a right. bunch of areas. It could have been a really, really scary thing. And so I think they did what they needed to. They acted quickly, which was, in my opinion, uncharacteristic of the government. Um, so I think it was good. And to your point about, um, you know, this, this, there were a lot of companies, it, it, almost every company that I've worked with has more than $250,000 in an account. And that's that's been kind of the max insurance from the FDIC. To put that into context, if you have 100 employees, average paid employees, your biweekly payroll is going to be more than $250,000. So we're not talking about like only these massive companies like that have tons of money and like who should care about them anyway. We're talking about like small and medium-sized businesses that... Um, couldn't make a single payroll beyond what's in their bank account yeah. uh, being at risk, right? So it was a pretty big deal. That kind of brings up the next question is, and for context for everyone else, like it's called Silicon Valley Bank, but is it only Silicon Silicon Valley that's affected? Like what about the startups in the rest of the country? Yeah, no, great question. I think all like, Almost every company that I know in Utah had some money in Silicon Valley Bank, so they have a real they have a really big presence at least here in Utah. 
Um, You know, our nickname is the Silicon Slope. So maybe we're more Mm -hmm. closely affiliated with Silicon Valley than maybe, you know, the mid mid east and, you know, uh, or the East Coast. But um, I think a lot of companies that are in kind of the growth and startup mode, there were so many things that Silicon Valley Bank did immensely well for startups with tools and the flexibility, like I mentioned before, that they were a very, very attractive, but sometimes even the only option that right. startups had because other banks wouldn't um, wouldn't take their money, wouldn't wouldn't give them the tools and the flexibility that they needed. And so Silicon Valley Bank, I think it's sad that the demise of it, and I think we desperately need another bank um, to take its place, especially in the startup community. Yeah. And... So to augment that as well as SBB has a very strong presence, uh, I believe, across the country uh, at this point, right? They they sponsor a lot of startup events, you know, it's in their interest. And that's kind of one of the weaknesses as well that brought them to this point and th- that, that they're, they're done is that almost all of their accounts were in this like non-traditional asset, right? Like a startup world, venture funds. And I think they also had 10% of their assets actually invested in venture as well, which is a large proportion compared to other other banks that invest in in venture. Uh, And so this does not affect, like the short answer is this does not only affect you know, Northern California, California in general, um, it affects startups around around the country as like Silicon Valley, the term has come to represent the startup world, not just a physical location. Yeah. But we should we should point out, I think we were starting to point out that it would have been way bigger than Silicon Valley Bank had the Fed not stepped in and, and stopped this because everybody that had money in any bank and you and whether you're a startup or not all right. businesses were starting to talk about okay how much money do we have in the bank well how much of that is insured if not maybe we should pull our money out of this bank because who knows how far and deep this is going to go yeah. and it could have caused widespread um right. you know widespread bank runs across many other institutions that yeah. that haven't been exposed like silicon valley bank they're just it's a ripple effect that everyone's yeah. panic would have you know kept going i think yeah. and from from what i understand the the loss the 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 2 billion loss that they were going to write off uh for these bonds on maybe 20 billion worth of bonds or something more than that like the assets of the company still uh i think could support the the depositors accounts it it's the shareholders it couldn't could couldn't support so um that's a interesting place i don't want to get too drawn into on this this call but how the fdic you know breaks up these companies is another explain like i'm five uh that i can post <laughs> in these in these that is it's really 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 fascinating so i want to take a switch to um our second segment called what does the future hold so we can get our eight balls out or something. Um, This is where I just call out some interesting predictions for 2023 and the experts, my guests tell us their hot take. Will it happen? What's real? What's behind this? So um, 
first, a topic that uh, has come up on Make Sense before, which is, and I know you have experience, uh, a lot of experience in social media. It was one of the early companies you founded. Uh, but social media users are going to turn their back on the algorithm. So this says that users will choose more private spaces over big platforms. Uh, we'll see the rise of smaller platforms like Post and, and some others. So what do you think? Are social media users going to turn their back on the algorithm? I think so. Um, I, I see a couple of emerging trends with with that. But overall, I totally agree with that sentiment that, you know, I think people are becoming more aware of how they've been used and abused. Our data has been used and we've been made into the product basically um, in exchange for these platforms being free. We've become advertising targets and gave up a tremendous amount of privacy and a tremendous amount of information about ourselves unknowingly uh, so that, you know, Facebook and Google and others could make a lot of money from advertising to us. Um, I think that that heightened awareness around privacy will cause people to um, a certain segment of people. And I'll, I'll circle back to that in a minute, but a certain segment of people will, will look for platforms that protect their information um, and potentially, I think, even be willing to pay. Um, for platforms that don't advertise to them, that don't use their data, but still give them kind of the original promise, but in a more pure and, and you know, genuine way to connect. Because we still all want that, that good aspect of social media, connecting with each other, sharing photos and videos and commenting and having uh, discourse and that kind of thing. I think that will always be a super valuable thing, but we'll get into of the rise of a lot of smaller platforms, like you said, that are either niche uh, interests. There's already like, you know, there was one that I saw last week. That's like just for hunting and fishing. Um, there's an app that's just for like uh, moms and like home building and home budgeting. And, you know, um, what's it called? Um, private education, like, you know, homeschooling kind of stuff. Right. And you'll see, I think a lot of that is going to start to pop up. And so we may have, I don't know, five or 10 apps on our phone that allow us to pop in and out of the specific networks that we really care about. I mean, there was, you know, Trump famously started his, his own and there, you know, so there's some of these others. I know that Elon Musk is going to start his own version of Twitter. Or at least that's the rumor. Um, <laughs> You know, that brings so, me to my next question, which is like, is there a platform that you would like to see disappear altogether? I mean, I don't like any of them. Uh, <laughs> I hate all of them currently because they're based on this model. Mm -hmm. I am weird in that I believe in paying for value and I believe in creating value. So on the startup side, and this this might segue to our last segment of you know, the mistakes that founders make and how, you know, how they can, you know, what we often see and patterns that we could, we can identify. But I think that we as, we as human beings should be willing to pay for value. Otherwise we have to suffer the consequences of what does free mean? Yeah. Because nothing's free. Nothing's I mean, let's just be honest. Nothing's free. There's some way that some things have to get paid for. Yeah. Um, and so I think that, 
um, I would like all the current social networks to go away. And I'd love to see the rise of new social networks that give us the ability to communicate and interact, um, but protect our data are based on like blockchain, you know, mm-hmm. type principles and that um, don't advertise to us unless we have explicitly given permission to be advertised to. And it's highly targeted, highly relevant advertising yeah. to us. I think as both of us being having one foot in um, in the Silicon Valley, the physical world, <laughs> right? And understand, like watching all of that, but also being outsiders and questioning that. You, you know, I lived in the Bay Area when Facebook was on its rise. And remember being like, why aren't they charging us to upload more pictures, right? Like the average album was 60 pictures and you would see people create like four albums uh, for their pictures. And I was like, I, I really think the people that are paying like a dollar to nudge people or a dollar to send stickers to people would pay a dollar to, you know, Store their data. have a yeah. photo album with yeah. 180 pictures, you know? Um, so uh, I, I think you and I share the criticism of, you know, never, you know, wanting to support startups that have real business models. Yeah. Um, and, so this switches to the next headline because I there's there's two two more. The other is, trend for this year though is like the secret. I don't think it's secret. Secret invasion of the super apps. So like at the same time that people might be shifting away from these a- apps, there's still a massive clash of super app level platforms by vying to dominate consumers' online lives, whether it's Google or Facebook or whatever. So like, do you think that that's a result of people moving away or, or something else? Yeah. And there's this real uh, problematic catch 22 in that you get the rise of all these, um, you know, disparate niche networks, but a lot of them are venture funded. And so the venture capitalists are saying, what's your exit? And then their exit is they get bought by one of the massive networks. So the dirty little secret that a lot of my family members didn't know, even till just recently, I'm telling them, you guys know that Facebook owns Instagram and owns WhatsApp. So, right. you, you know, it's all Facebook. And they're like, so, well, you know, it was amazing to me that a lot of people still didn't realize that. Right? Still didn't realize that like, hey, you got off Facebook, but you created a private group on WhatsApp. Yeah. So you're still, your data is still going. Yeah. You know, if you hate Mark Zuckerberg, you're it's a hard to get away from him, right? Right. And so we've got this we've got this challenge where I love I would love to see the rise of these independent networks, but it also almost feels inevitable that for those founders to get a meaningful exit for themselves and their employees and for the the, inve- the investors who invested in them that there'll be a real big temptation to get sucked into the Borg, right? right. Um, and and so I've been contemplating and thinking, and it, I don't have a solution for it yet other than it is one of my life's goals to create a venture firm that will invest in businesses that have profitable business models like you and I have talked about. And, uh, and that's been my investment thesis so far. I don't invest in... Which- in 
like it shouldn't be so out there and crazy. I know, but it's crazy. It's crazy. It, it is something that you have to specify is that I invest in startups with real business. Yes, models. with a real business model uh, that's not just eyeballs and it's not purely ad supported. Um, I do invest in ad tech and I'm actually building some ad tech myself, but it's it's totally in the opt-in permission based. Like it's not, you know, sneakily steal your data kind of, I hate that model. Mm -hmm. So the the trick will be, can we create these other social networks that can sustainably remain independent forever and not get sucked into, you know, one of the big two or three, if if you call it Microsoft, Google and Meta, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Meta also announced today another round of 10,000 layoffs and they want to point to partly due to Apple's introduction of privacy features two years ago that they still haven't recovered from. And that would be an example of these super apps kind of clashing yeah. with other Apple Facebook blaming or Meta face blaming um, Apple. If anyone listened to like two episodes ago, I talked about uh, Meta, you know, wasting $13 billion pursuing the metaverse yeah. last year, just so Mark Zuckerberg could cover up uh, the, the the bad job his platform did on um, information security yeah. <laughs> during, uh, you know, the past past five, six, seven years. So, yeah. um, so now this one's going to bring us back to kind of Silicon Valley and like where we go from here with fundraising. But the other trend is that VCs will stop hunting unicorns. That basically says investors will go back to the basics, look for resilient entrepreneurs and be, this part may be arguable, more realistic about expectations. So what do you think? I think that's false. Mm. Even though I don't want it to be, I want the sentiment to be true, but here's why I think it's false. There are so many different investment vehicles, um, ranging from real estate to private equity funds, to just the stock market and index funds, uh, to long-term treasuries and hedge funds. There's so many places that people can put money. The reason venture funds came about and exist, and and in my opinion, will always exist, is in that higher risk, higher reward category. And the truth of the matter is that all investors suck at identifying good companies. And any, any VC or any investor that tells me otherwise, I think they're full of crap and they're in denial. Um, and this is me speaking as an investor too. Um, the, the venture capitalists, the people that I respect are the ones that at least have the decency and the self-awareness to say, look, we're gambling. We suck at, you know, there's some, there's some basic principles, but basically we're gambling. And the truth of that is if they weren't gambling, then they wouldn't need the top two or three companies out of 20 to 30 in their portfolio to return all of their, their fund. Right. Right. And everybody likes to brag about, oh, I was in Uber early or I was in uh, Airbnb early or whatever, but they don't talk about the 30 other companies that totally imploded that they put millions and millions of dollars in. Nobody talks about that. Right. Um, but they all do. That Nobody's batting a thousand. Nobody's even batting like 500% right. so, or 50%. They're not batting 500, right? So the, the truth is 
that because of this combination of like all investors suck at picking good companies and it's really just kind of educated gambling, um, there's and this combination where investors will always want a vehicle to be able to put um, their money that has this potential for outsized returns like 5x, 10x, 100x their investment. There will always exist a world where um, it's grow at all costs, kind of swing for the fences, like go for broke kind of uh, attitude. And yeah. a lot of the VCs who are like, hey, let's let's rein it in. Let's, you know, let's focus on the fundamentals. Let's focus on profitability. I think a lot of that is just rhetoric. I think a lot of it is just they're saying what that, you know, they think they should say or what people expect them to say. But really, if all if all investors were only focused on the calm companies, to use a term I heard from Tyler Tringas, like the, the, the companies that have just slow growth, consistent profitability models, they would never get the big, huge, you know, the massive hits. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what makes them famous. And that's what makes them a lot of money. And I, so I think there's always going to be this place where people are swinging for the fences. And that means a VC is going to be telling you as a founder, go for broke, like, you know, this is grow at all costs. This is focused mm -hmm. less on profitability and more on top line revenue. And, and that's just going to, I think it's all, there's always going to be that kind of pressure. I think so, on those types of startups. So we might see some angels and venture funds join you on putting a real business model into their investment thesis and criteria, but we still are going to see venture funds swinging for the fences, looking for those unicorns because at the end of the day, and I have a YouTube video that I will also make sure is tagged explaining what Dave talked about, whereas like out of 10 startups, you have to believe all 10 are going to 100x your returns. The reality is half of them are going to go under two or three might just break even. And then the other two are going to cover yeah. all of your losses. Yeah. Return all of your amazing returns. <laughs> right. All of your amazing returns. Yeah. And so you have to have some wild ones in that port portfolio. Uh, so you have to have some of those unicorns. Um, if they weren't there, then VCs would probably stop VCing altogether. Yeah, there wouldn't be venture capital funds. There wouldn't just be. be doing like private equity or, you know, friends and family rounds and just everyone, everyone would be running their companies like a calm company, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that term as well to um, reference uh, uh, startups maybe you would just call them small businesses. There's a whole other argument about what is a startup, but yeah, um, yeah that are growing uh, more uh, uh, steadily, organically, judiciously. So that brings us to our final section, which is the uh, is a deep dive. Uh, we've kind of been deep diving this whole time, but uh, Silicon Valley Bank and how this really affects fundraising for our pre-seed seed series a startups that the younger ones that maybe have a business model haven't totally proved that business model out um the kind of hot take that i got just an hour before we got on the phone um through a more traditional uh financial 
expert and an angel, then through an angel. So it's a phone, phone converse, phone line conversation. I might've missed some pieces because of kind of the instability of FDIC insured financial institutions, we may actually see people diversify some of their uh, finances into non-traditional assets, i.e. startups being one of those commodities. Uh, So we might actually see some angels become looser with their purse strings as they want to move cash out of like the traditional uh, S&P, NASDAQ, financial, the traditional financial markets that we talk about, you know, in the public. So what do you think? What it, Like, what do you think is going to happen with angel investors? What do you think is happening with venture funds? If you had a seed startup that was in the middle of raising around, would you tell them to pause for a couple months? What's the advice here? Uh, let me start at the end and then work back to the beginning of your question. I've, I'm telling startups to be as aggressive as you can. Uh, it is tough. The environment is is really, really tough. It was already kind of chilly given the you know talk of recession and everything else that uh, before the, the bank issue. And then that's just kind of added fuel to the fire for a lot of investors saying like, hey, we're going to hold back. We're going to pause we're not going to invest in any new investments for a little bit to see how this all plays out. And before the Fed did what they were did what they did, there were some that were saying like we have to keep all of our dry powder in order just to help our existing investments potentially make payroll or whatever in the term of short term loans, and then we'll circle back to like making new investments yeah. after all the dust has settled. And there's even still some of that sentiment, even with you know even with the Fed's actions, just because of the timing of, you know, when that cash will, you know, reach everybody. But I think that, uh, I think, I think startups should be aggressive about their fundraising. And I think there's a unique opportunity for the venture capital firms to not follow the herd mentality of everybody pulling back and everybody waiting and seeing. I think some venture capital firms could look at this as an opportunity to snatch up a lot of good deals, a lot of good um, a lot yeah. of cool new startups and steal those away from maybe some of the bigger, more well-known venture firms. Uh, yeah. While those guys are sitting on the sidelines, like there's an opportunity for someone to zag while everyone else is, you know, zigging basically. Uh, I really so, like that. Yeah. I, if I had my own fund, I would actually get more aggressive about looking at startups and making investments while everybody else is like waiting to see what happens. I think that creates an opportunity. I I see opportunity in that. And I think, but I think that the founders are just going to have to be more persistent. It means that there's a lot more conversations probably required to find the right kind of uh, investment partner. It means that they are fighting against you know, this, this tendency from a lot of the firms to just take a wait and see approach that the flip side that entrepreneurs need to know, and this is part of like doing your research, doing your homework is if a fund has recently closed a, a new fund. So, you know, most venture right. firms have multiple funds, one fund, one, two, three, four, five, somewhere on their 10th fund or they whatever. Have capital to, to, they might have capital to, to blue light. Yes, they have a ton of capital and their LPs, the the people who've given them that money, expect them to deploy that capital and put it to use. They can't 
just sit on the sidelines forever. They've got to eventually deploy that capital. And so there's risk on the venture side of waiting too long and not deploying your capital or being too conservative, especially if you just closed a big round. So I'm telling this, the founders to look for the funds that, that have recently closed a big round of capital um, and, and, and look for the ones who are at least on like Twitter or on social media have, have taken a little bit more of an opportunistic view of all of this instead of a like, whoa, we got to, you know, rein everything right. in and pull back. And then I think there's opportunity for both the venture capitalists and the startup, the founders to find a good marriage in what could be a unique opportunity um, for the, the venture capitalists who are just a little bit more um, bold and aggressive rather than just following the rest of the sheep into like waiting and seeing. So Dave's advice is uh, for, for venture funds is think for yourself. <laughs> do what do what nobody else is doing basically <laughs> and you have to forgive me um because i'm from philadelphia my mind's been in football for like a lot longer than other people <laughs> in this country uh <laughs> the past few months and i think one of the things howie roseman our general manager for the philadelphia eagles he's had a very successful uh career uh pulling like creating teams over the past like decade. And someone asked him at the combine two weeks ago, like whether he thought that other teams were going to follow his strategy. And he said, you know, once you see yourself in a position of following other people's strategy, you're too late. Yeah. Right? And I think that that is like really important for the venture funds. I also, I, so there was another opinion I read about what startups should be doing at Charlie O'Donnell. He is a managing director of Brooklyn Bridge uh, Ventures and, and he writes a, a bunch around the New York City ecosystem. And his kind of hot take was for startup founders, um, not to like tighten their purse strings as far as going after customers and, and growing. Uh, you know, there's an instinct, again, there's an instinct with everyone to hold their purse strings. And for founders, they might say, okay, we're going to grow more slowly to preserve our runway. That being, but that means that like when, if you pitch, and you're not showing these numbers, investors that are willing to invest are going to say, well, it looks like I can like afford to wait on you. And there's still like this FOMO that like entrepreneurs have to play off of when fundraising. Uh, and so he was saying, you know, really like double down um, on speeding up your acquisition. And, and that's kind of what so that you stand out for investors. And that's what you're kind of saying to investors too, is like you should double down um, because like everyone else's uh, kind of uh, gut is to, is to hold on. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I, I believe that, that the venture capitalists should now be a little bit more aggressive and, and finding good companies to deploy their capital in. Um, but I still, the, the irony is I still believe that businesses, that startups should be, that focus on the fundamentals of their unit economics and their business model. And I don't believe in pandering to, I, I totally agree that 
with that statement that that's what investors kind of are looking for. But I I would prefer if if I'm in the founder's shoes, I would prefer to to find an investor that says, "Hey, you guys have been running your business really intelligently, really wisely, really carefully, and we can come in and give you that growth capital to help you accelerate that." But we can still accelerate the growth while focusing on profitability and not like grow at all costs. I don't want to partner with a venture capital firm that has the attitude of grow at all costs uh, because I think there's a lot of negative side effects of that, um, that that even negatively impact employees. Um, You know, there's a whole other conversation we could have about. Um, equity beyond like the core founders equity and why do options never end up, you know, being worth anything for any employees. It's partly Mm -hmm. driven by this, you know, grow at all costs and the options are common compared to preferences that are stacked on top of it. And they never end up unless, unless it's like, you know, meta or Google or one of those big ones, it's rare that the lower level employees walk away with anything. And so it's this false promise of, you know, hey, we're doing this because your equity is going to grow. And then it's all, you know, it's all right. There's nothing yeah. there when, when they <laughs> well, get to the end. Yeah. But that's, yep. a whole, that's a whole nother, you know. Yeah, problem. right. Should, should you take options and... <laughs> We yeah we're we don't want to make it more complicated for yeah. people so so it sounds like if we're gonna kind of make sense of the the um, Silicon Valley Bank fallout what startups should be doing is probably the advice we'd give all the time focus on the fundamentals yeah. uh, top line revenue unit economics gross profit how much you actually make that you can cover your employee's salary, uh, stuff like that. And, um, and with venture funds, it, it has to kind of, they're still going to play. There's still going to be a bunch that play risky this year. We'll shoot for those unicorns. They have to, it's just the nature of that uh, financial asset. Um, Any other kind of make sense summary points you want to share? No, I, I, I think it's going to be hard. I, I do think the environment is tougher, but I would, my only advice would be don't, don't give up, don't get discouraged and don't slow down. Don't, don't let the rhetoric that's out there, the narrative that's like, oh, the fundraising environment's really hard and oh, VCs aren't going to invest because of the Silicon Valley Bank or any of this or the, or the recession or whatever. Don't let that message slow you down or, or, or depress you. I think you, you know, as an entrepreneur, you've got to be resilient. You've got to be persistent. You've got to follow your, your passion and your cause, your purpose. Um, And it is going to be harder, but I think that they're, if, if they're out there and they're knocking enough doors and they're making enough calls and they're networking into enough firms, they'll find that one smart venture firm that's actually, you know, putting the pedal to the metal rather than putting the brakes on. And it could be a great, great marriage for them. And, you know, and that would be the right partner to have, I think, in these kind of circumstances. Yeah. So before we sign off, Dave, where can people find you? I know you just like, don't really like any of the social platforms. Do you want people to find you? I am on Twitter. I'm at David Oldham. Uh, so David, instead of Dave, I'm at David Oldham on Twitter. Uh, I'm um, on LinkedIn. I think I'm slash Dave Oldham on LinkedIn. 
Switching those it are up. the two places I mainly hang out for business stuff. Um, I yeah. have an Instagram account, but I'm more of a voyeur than a poster <laughs> there. Um, yeah. And it's just like my friends and family that, you know, I, I don't really do much business-y kind of stuff on Instagram. Yeah, so. no. So, all right. Well, thank you for listening to Make Sense with me, your host, Lindsay Tabus, and guest, Dave Oldham. If you want to continue to be the smartest person in the room, uh, hit that subscribe button for next week's episode. Uh, every subscriber on YouTube makes a huge difference, and they run ads on my videos. But since I don't have a 1,000 subscribers yet, I don't Smash get paid. that subscribe button. <laughs> <Smash it. laughs> and we'll see you next week.